Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors. To out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is August 5th, 2020, and you're listening to episode number 12. Today, we take you to the state of Virginia and speak with distiller Becky Harris, owner of Catoctin Creek Distilling Company. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Streaming, sipping, and sensory. Bourbon Women's Sip Summer Series kicks off Women's Equality Week with a three-day digital conference. August 20th through 22nd, 6 to 9.30 p.m. Enjoy a top-shelf collection of spirits education right at your fingertips. This first-ever and distinctively curated online series will keep you sipping with fellow bourbon women this summer. You'll experience unique tastings, mixology, food pairings, and informative and engaging segments with industry experts that include live Q&A, all from the comfort of your own home. Plus, you can take part in our first-ever e-auction of -of one-of-a-kind bourbon items and experiences. Tickets and more information available at bourbonwomen.org. Although to many, bourbon is synonymous with American whiskey, rye is America's first whiskey, and it was the more popular of the two for much of American history. The first permanent English settlement in what later became the United States was Jamestown, Virginia, which was established on May 14, 1607. The settlement was named after the then King of England, King James I. In 1620, near Jamestown, George Thorpe, an English settler, distilled the first American spirit, a batch of whiskey. The state of Virginia, therefore, rightly claims it to be the birthplace of American distilling. The first batch of American whiskey, reportedly, was distilled from corn. Rye, however, soon exerted its whiskey dominance in the colonies that would later become the states of New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and, of course, Virginia. Settlers of Germanic descent grew rye for bread, and when they immigrated to the New World, they brought with them what they knew best. In fact, it's believed the ship Mary Hope, arriving in Philadelphia in 1710, carried two now-familiar family names to the colony, Oberholzer, now Oberholt, and Burma, now Beam. Socioeconomic factors made whiskey an inexpensive agricultural product, the preferred drink of farmers and the lower classes. The educated, merchants, and wealthy, by contrast, preferred ale, cider, and rum. The rise of transatlantic hostilities between the Americans and the English, however, made importing molasses used in rum making from the Caribbean increasingly difficult. And so rye, which flourished in the climates of America's eastern coast, became the predominant grain employed by colonist distillers. By the end of the 18th century, thousands of small grain distillers had popped up in Maryland, Pennsylvania, New York, and Virginia. And their grain of choice was rye. In the American South, however, because of its distinct weather and other environmental conditions, corn was king. Since most Americans still lived east of the Appalachian Mountains, and the shipping routes for corn-based whiskey involved long journeys downriver to New Orleans or overland across mountainous terrain, rye whiskey flourished. And these factors helped rye whiskey maintain its market dominance from the end of the Civil War until Prohibition. Fast forward to 2009, Purserville, Virginia, home to Loudoun County's first legal distillery since before Prohibition. Founded by Becky Harris and husband Scott Harris, Catoctin Creek Distilling Company proudly produces what's become Virginia's most awarded rye whiskeys. 
Up next, we talk with Becky about her whiskey journey and Catoctin Creek's Roundstone Rye. Stay with us. Team Whiskey is the original brand for outdoor sports and whiskey enthusiasts who hosts events and sells apparel to help raise money for cancer support groups. Team Whiskey hats are unique and one-of-a-kind, custom-built, and features outdoor and whiskey-related artwork on the underbill. T-shirts are made from a quality and comfortable 60-40 cotton blend that are pre-shrunk. A portion of every purchase and event ticket sold is donated to cancer support groups. To learn more about Team Whiskey, their products, programs, upcoming fundraising events, and how you can help support a cancer support group, visit www.team-whiskey.com. That's www.team-whiskey.com. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, we have with us a very special guest, Becky Harris. Becky is chief distiller and co-founder of Catoctin Creek Distillery in Purcellville, Virginia. Becky, thank you for joining us. I'm really happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Yes. Thank you so much for, for coming here. I don't know about you, but the weather here has been pretty hot. Yeah, same here. Yeah. So you have your own distillery. How did you get from school to one day owning your own distillery? Is that something you ever thought about doing as a youngster? No, it was never in any sort of way had it ever crossed my mind. I was, I am a chemical engineer and um, I had worked in the in a number of different places in the industry. I've done copper and nickel plating on plastics for EMF RF shielding. I've done the polystyrene foam trays and contact lenses. So it's like oh, wow. pretty much different, totally different things. Like like your colleague, Nicole Austin, who is also a chemical engineer who was doing water treatment work in New York City and said, uh-uh, this ain't it. <laughs> well, it was kind of like that. I had been home um, with our two sons. My youngest was just about in fifth grade. So it was like, oh, I probably, it's time to go back. I'm going to trying to figure out what I want to do. Didn't want a huge commute. And my husband came to me with this idea of starting a distillery. And I was like, the first thing that went through my head was, this is the craziest thing I've heard <laughs> of in a long time. But it was like, okay, I want to be supportive. So I said, how about you work on a business plan? <laughs> and so he, because in my mind, it was like, obviously you will see the error of your way. <laughs> right, and right. His, and his, and his, business, his business administration, his background? Uh, no, he's actually a uh, software engineer. Mm, okay. And he had been in government contracting for 20 years, which he likes to say taught him a great love of drinking. Uh. <laughs> he said, you know, it was like the 20th revision on a 26-page PowerPoint for a contract he knew they weren't going to get. <laughs> and he's just like, I've got to figure out how I get out of here. For the benefit of our listeners, Becky's referring to Scott Harris, her husband and co-founder yes. of Catoctin Creek. Exactly. And so he was essentially dreaming of something else. And he had had a winery job as a teenager mm -hmm. in Mississippi, of all places. Wow. Yeah, exactly. But he loved it. Mm -hmm. But he thought there were a lot of wineries around here. And in the meantime, he had learned and to love spirits. And so he came up with that. 
basically I sent him off to do a business plan and he almost gave up. Um, <laughs> but then he had actually gone to a couple small distilleries and kind of flipped the idea of how we could do it. Mm, right. Okay. It didn't have to have huge funding to start off. You start really tiny. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when he came to me with the business plan, it was like, he keeps his day job. I go, make make the whiskey do all the stuff every day and you know no pay and we basically take all our our savings and put it into the whiskey business okay and so that's all, a big leap yeah, of faith so there. We, <laughs> i looked at it like that if if it went all to hell then i'd get a job anyway so it was kind of like, if we're ever going to take a chance and do this, mm -hmm. we we had had a break from my income. So I'm as cheap as I'm ever going to be. <laughs> yeah. They so. say the two shortest routes to the poorhouse are financing a feature film and opening a distillery. Right. Which... And that's God's truth. <laughs> that is God's truth. Actually, I, I, I sit there and say that's a big leap of faith. But then I was thinking about it. And that's exactly what I'm doing with this TV pilot. So I don't know why I said that. <laughs> is your husband from Mississippi or from the South? He's an army brat. So uh -huh. it was basically that was he was high school at that point. Okay. All right. Okay. Very good. Where did you grow up? I grew up in West Central Wisconsin, a little town okay. called Chippewa Falls. Okay. Very good. And how, yeah. how did you get in Virginia? So what's that route? <laughs> it's basically um, went to school in Madison, ended up, my parents moved to Atlanta. So I went up in Atlanta and that was where I met my husband and he got a job in Virginia. So we kind mm. of made our way here. It was about 20 years ago now. So we've been here for a long time now. Okay. All right. Very good. Now, so is this like the, the longest place he's ever lived at one Oh, by far, by <laughs> far. Yeah. <laughs> yes, his parents continue to move regularly. I think oh, it's geez. like they almost get the itch, but but he's been, yeah, we've been in the same house for 23 years now. Okay. Wow, cool. Now, you're a chemical engineer by training. There yeah. are quite a few chemical engineers who have become distillers. Nicole Austin and Dave Pickrell immediately mm -hmm. come to mind. It's, it's a good fit. You know, if you look at the biggest distilleries, really, they're, in a way, an artisanal ethanol plant. Uh -huh. um, it's really big, and they're but they are making tremendous amounts of ethanol. So all the things that you do when you make ethanol are all chemical processes exactly. and fermentation. So it, it, it makes sense from, a, from that standpoint. I think you have the language and the ability to learn lots of different things when you are a chemical engineer you're familiar enough with enough difficult different chemical processes that you can pretty much figure how to do anything cool. so when scott suggested it it was never a question of can i learn to do it sure i can learn to make whiskey can you make money <laughs> <laughs> That's really the hard point of this business. Now, very few chemical engineers, you know, ever, ever achieve any notoriety, at least, at least publicly. But now you've been splashed across the pages of some high profile publications. And now apparently you are a woman, a one of six women in whiskey to watch. I'm sure when you went into chemical engineering, you weren't uh, anticipating, quote unquote, being a celebrity, a personality. So <laughs> yes. how, how does it feel? 
<laughs> look out Beyonce. No. <laughs> no, it really doesn't feel like much at all. I'm, I'm, I'm really privileged to be able to do this job and to work with so many amazing people. I think one of the things that I was most surprised about and has been one of my favorite parts of this is getting to know so many of the hospitality industry, mm-hmm. you know, our bartenders, our chefs, you know, they really do a really tough job. They see a lot of people who are not at their best behavior and yet they're <laughs> so professional and, and, and yet they're trying to make us have a really great experience. And so mm-hmm. that's really been a treat for me. You know, you mm-hmm. don't generally get to be part of that world as an engineer, if you will. So yeah. it, it really is a bonus. So out of all the jobs that you've done up until this point, is this your favorite? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having your own business is like a roller coaster ride, no matter what. Some days it was the best thing you ever did. And some days, you know, it's like somebody comes and offers me, you know, quarter sometimes. And I might be like, ah, I'd love to have a vacation that I'm actually gone. But, you know, (laughs) that's part of every small business. Right. How is Virginia rye distinct from Maryland rye or um, I don't even know how to say it. Monongahela. Mahonganila styles. Or Pennsylvania styles of rye. What I'd like to think is that so Maryland rye and the Pennsylvania rye were really defined at a time when the whiskey industry was quite large that there were these were large industrial manufacturers of rye at the time pre-prohibition that it was the you know rye is one of america's two native spirits right there were huge factories really and you know you think about that time and you don't necessarily think about that but when virginia was the biggest spirits maker in the united states it was really before there were much on the way of united states It was very much agricultural. It was very diverse. There were people making rum. There were a lot of people making brandies. And, you know, there were a lot of people making rye. And so really before there was whiskey, there was rum and then there was brandy. So to me, what Virginia rye is about is about being connected to the land, being, you know, locally made copper pot stills. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're kind of unique in that really rye is our main gig, you know, most of the other distilleries in Virginia are making multiple products, Mm -hmm. bourbon, single malt, rye, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe wheat whiskey. And we've, we've kind of, you know, hitched our wagon to rye as that category. We want to be known for it. We want to make it, we want to be better every year. Right. And was, was that choice to be rye forward basically in your business? because of the history or did was it just the the flavor profile that you preferred or both honestly i i do really love rye i love the flavor profile of it um i wasn't a big whiskey drinker before we started the company <laughs> it was a more of i made i made things that tasted good to me mm. and you followed your palate then as i was going yeah exactly and as i was going i learned more about it and i've learned more i mean i didn't think i liked bourbon for a long time mm-hmm. yeah um, me too i 
Yeah, I felt like it was too sweet and too, you know, sometimes it, if it's young, it's too hot. And it just didn't mm-hmm. really appeal to me until I tried some much more expensive bourbons than I would have ever dropped money on. Right. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, suddenly I see how bourbon can be. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But, you know, it, it's definitely not my, so rye was really... I before that I would say that I did enjoy single malt. I'm not a big I don't tend to like the super smoky ones. Yeah, but I like kind of that fruity mid palette that's on a good single malt. Mm-hmm. But I really like the way that that can be in rye too. Mm-hmm. It's not in every rye, but it's in our rye. I love your rye. Your rye is fantastic. Thank you. We wanted to do 100% rye. We get rye from, right now it's three different producers. We've had as many as four. All Um, of them in Virginia? Yeah. And I like to, for my mash bill, it's 100% rye, but I use three different sources. Well, actually one's in Pennsylvania, sorry. Pennsylvania, Virginia, um, in Virginia. And I'm looking at maybe starting up with someone in West Virginia too. So it's kind of like in the circle around us. Right, right. Well, your state's over there are so small. We'll, we'll give you a lead yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's all right near each other. But yeah. we, um, so we, we find that each one tastes a little different. So I generally, when I'm starting with a new farmer, I will do a single mash with just their grain and then taste it and then see where I think it could grow into our product. If it, you know, if it has good flavor, if I can see a way to fit it in and then I'll start quite low in percentage in the mash bill with that one and kind of grow it over time so that because we do single barrel whiskeys, I don't want anything to be, you know, too jarring or out of place. So it's, it takes a while to start with a new farmer. Everything you do is pot distilled. We have a hybrid column still. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was funny because I was talking to someone at one point and they were telling me that I needed to get, you know, a beer still, a column still. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you know, what takes me like, you know, eight to nine hours to turn around 300 gallons would take me like three minutes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean economically it makes all the sense in the world but we feel like there's flavor trade-offs uh-huh. yeah. yeah yeah well that's that's one of the reasons that you know people go for pot so to speak is <laughs> yeah. the flavor it's the funk you know yeah. more of the more of those essential flavors are uh you know they're not cleaned out they're not they're not scrubbed out if you will Right. And as a small producer, to differentiate yourself, you really have to think about what am I willing to do that maybe the biggest producers don't normally do. Yeah. So you said you, you have a hybrid still. How does that how does that work? You like have a pot part on the bottom and then the column part. On yeah. Top? And a column on the top. Yeah. And then you can adjust and bypass uh, the, the plates in the column, depending on what you want to do with it. Oh, that's cool. Now, you, you opened in 2009. Correct. Well, 2009, we founded the company and leased the building. And then we started the process of getting our DSP. So we got that the end of 2009. And we did our first run in 2010, like January 1st, I think it was like really right away. When did you start selling product? It was by the middle of 2010 and we were like sitting here doing the, oh, we're going to do the, um, you know, we'll do white spirits. And then we went to Virginia 
and presented and they're like um we'll take the whiskey and we're like (laughs) and so it was kind of the first stuff was really young but i never released anything i did thought didn't taste good Uh um it was a lot more grain forward than it is now Mm -hmm. but i always use 30 gallon barrels not 53s one of the reasons i did that was because i was the only person there and i can move around 30 gallon barrel pretty easily Um, a 53 is a little bit more Mm -hmm. than i can so now that you guys have been doing this a good 10 years is your husband more hands-on or does he still have his other job Oh, he, he, he had to quit his day job. Probably. I think it was two to three years in. He was, you know, he was doing, you know, things where he said one point he was like taking a call, trying to get bottles or something. And he realized, (laughs) you know what, I really need to be focused on my business, but he had been tapering off at his other job. So it was kind of like, it was kind of a natural transition and so we, you know, he's been, he's been full-time for, for quite a while. He's, um, he handles most of the business side. So he does the, he does most of our marketing and dealing with distributors and all that, you know, glorious stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> glorious. Did, did, did <laughs> glorious. You, did you have the not fun stuff? Yes. <laughs> all the business stuff, how much you, you know, all these uh, terms of how you make and sell and incentives and what have you. And that's not my strong suit. Definitely. Becky, did you source product early on or has everything you've ever sold been produced at the distillery? No, we always made it a hundred percent from scratch. So maybe that was not the move. If we wanted oh, to grow faster, we certainly would have you know, we have friends who've been in the industry the exact same amount of time as we did. They sourced a significant amount mm-hmm. and hey, they got really big and they're doing great. And I'm really proud to know them. We kind of stuck to, we're going to make it. So that has made our path much slower and much longer, uh-huh. but it really kind of was right. the way we wanted to do it. But I feel like if you do it that way, then well, first of all, it's kind of an honor to know that you made all of your products instead of finished somebody else's products. But I think it helps keep the-, the flavor profiles keep more in line if it's something that you're controlling than something that you have to finish, I would think. Right. For me, it was about that, you know, we can, I can essentially continue to grow this, to grow this product at a rate a little bit more every year. I'm never going to suddenly be worldwide because, you know, we're basically living within our means. We can only put a little more away than we sold the last time. You know, it's like a lot of people don't understand that making whiskey is basically putting money in a warehouse. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, and and so at some when you start without being independently wealthy, it definitely changes the calculus on the speed of your growth. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, all of your rise are regionally sourced. Yes. You also make a gin and several brandies. Now, I know the brandies are uh, the, the fruit, the fruit brandies. Uh, those are regionally sourced, correct? Yes, absolutely. The botanical mix in your gin, uh, is that also at least informed locally? Not really. We just kind of were playing with flavors and, you know, we didn't really try to go about sourcing anything locally or whatever for that. It was, gin was never my thing mm-hmm. and until I started to make it. And so 
I kind of came up with a botanical mix that appealed to me. Now I actually like gin, but I had at the time before that had a bad gin experience. And, you know, those have a kind so many people know, you know, bad tequila experiences, whatever. And so I kind of had to get over that hump. So it seems like it reads to me sweet, but botanically sweet rather than sugar. Right. Now, I back to your brandies. I ask about them because a lot of whiskey drinkers are migrating into or expanding into brandy. Can you mm-hmm. talk to us a bit about what you produce? So we currently do four different brand, well, five different brandies, four different fruits. So we do our first first brandy we ever did was the first thing we ever ran on our still, which is a pear brandy. Uh, one of our local winemakers makes a pear wine and we needed to test our still. And so he had offered to help out. So we gave him a call and said, do you have anything we can try? And he said, I've got a drum of pear wine. And so he brought it over. We tried it out and that kind of hatched a collaboration that still continues to this day. Mm. So that's one of, that's probably one of our smaller products, the pear brandy. It's really lovely, kind of delicate and earthy, like a cooked pear. Mm-hmm. The uh, peach brandy, of course, gets that kind of heady, rich, waxy peachiness. Mm-hmm. That's like kind of cobblery. That is with another winery that does peach wine. And so we work with them pretty regularly every year they they'll make wine for us and we distill it and we do an apple brandy with a cidery in richmond virginia mm. um we've been working with them for probably six years seven years now um pretty much annually we'll do a collaboration and so we do essentially a brandy share they'll make enough of the cider that when we both do it we each keep half and no money changes hands So everybody gets something out of it. Yeah. So we get enough apple brandy then to to sell and they get some that they use for uh, blending into like some more liqueur type products. Um, And we we do the same with Virginia brandy, which is would be a great brandy. So Mm -hmm. initially we we were doing Saval Blanc and Chamberson were the two grapes. We still do a lot of Chamberson because that's a blender that a lot of wineries, you know, want to do shares with and we've done some Vidal Blanc in there a little bit of Norton here and there Norton's kind of a, an interesting grape as it's you know native and um, it's really got an interesting floral character for a 10-year anniversary we released an XO brandy mm-hmm. that was eight years old one yeah. more note about your whiskeys before we go into tasting you do a number of special releases now and again where the whiskey is aged or at least finished in some rather unexpected woods. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on that? that? Yeah, we've got most of our finishing projects are ones where we collaborate with different breweries or wineries, you know, locally. We've we've got few Virginia wineries that make some ports. So we've got a few port finishes that we've done with them. We've got, um, we did a finishing project that Wolfgang Puck brought into his restaurants. That's a Zinfandel oh, finish. Nice. And that one was really fun. It, we, we had tried it. And when his organization came to us, when they were opening the cut steakhouse in DC, they were looking for a, a bespoke whiskey for that. And so they tasted it. They loved it. And so they brought it in and Apparently, when he opens restaurants, they bring chefs from all over to come 
and kind of kick off the mm -hmm. new restaurant. And so they all tasted it and loved it. So they really want to, I mean, it's kind of been a hold because of COVID, but they did want to bring it to many more places. So they're actually, I believe they have it out at the steakhouse in Vegas. And I think there might be some out in California and Texas. So they're bringing it everywhere they have That's there. Wonderful. I think it might've even gone to Dubai. Wow, my Lord. Patakton, yeah. Dubai. So it was That's pretty cool. cool. Yeah. Tasting. I think it's time. <laughs> all right. Because um, I'm getting thirsty. <laughs> Becky, you all. Uh, Carrie and I each have three of the round stone expressions, the 40%, the 46%, and the 58%. Would you be our guide? I almost always start people at the 40%. So that's our flagship. That one is, it was really funny because we started with that because we were so small. We had so little whiskey. That it was like, okay, we're just doing it. We're doing it at 40%. You know, this is where we can get the most out of it. And I like to call this really my front porch sipper okay. of a whiskey. I really, I really like so this one, actually. Very easy drinking. It's just super relaxed. I'm like, it's not trying real hard. And it's, but it still punches above its weight class in flavor for the mm. proof so you put this in a cocktail it's not going to mm -hmm. disappear it's still got plenty of flavor and shows up so for me it's just it's got a nice fruitiness there's a nice gentle spice but it's not really aggressive it's i like to tell people too that it's like a gateway mm -hmm. ride I'm getting on and it's also again. a uh, it's also a double gold yeah yeah we've been you know we've had we've been really pretty consistently you know scoring right in those areas when we enter a lot of competitions so it's always like the upper 80s low 90s kind of in those things and you know and it's we've been really happy that you know we've been able to come up with a way of doing it that we feel keeps quality really high even in a single barrel expression i'm getting a lot of caramel and a bit of leather on the nose okay hold on let me smell it Oh, that's beautiful. And I smell that too. I smell the bit of leather. It's like if I'm in a leather shop eating a caramel candy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at the legs on that. That's beautiful. I'm getting velvet and caramel uh, and with a very long lasting finish. Mm -hmm. Very long lasting finish. Yep. I'm not tasting it's velvet, a velvet mouthfeel, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, it's a velvet, yeah, it's a velvet mouthfeel with, a, with a, a good caramel big caramel flavor and it's got a teeny bit of spice but it's not it doesn't hit you over the head with it it's a very like i could so s totally see this is why you have it as your as your porch sipper what i do when i'm doing this is i'll take a dozen barrels or so at a time and i taste through them at the different proofs so all of these barrels uh, of all of these whiskeys are made the same way and they're separated barrel selection wise so I'll first taste through all those barrels at cask proof and look for the ones that are like the standouts. Then I'll try them all at 92 proof and look at which ones seem to suit that best. And then I look for the ones that just are super easy and relaxed, but have a really nice rye profile. And those are my, my 80. Yeah. Proofs. One of, one of the distinguishing marks, if you will, of Catoctin is that everything is single barrel. Right. That's I just totally thought of a question that I wanted to ask that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but the name Catoctin Creek, are you <laughs> near Catoctin Creek or what, where did that come from? 
Yeah, it's actually right between my home and the distillery is Catoctin Creek. So there's a Catoctin Creek that that there are a couple branches of it all over the county where we live. And across the river on the other side of the Potomac in Maryland, there's a Catoctin Creek. And the Catoctin Mountains are where Camp David is. So Catoctin is a pretty common regional Mm -hmm. name. And so, you know, we chose it, thought, oh, what a great name, easy to trademark. Nobody else really had it. Of course, we didn't truly realized that one of the first things we'd have to do when we left a regional market was teach people how to say (laughs) (laughs) because it's not necessarily as obvious as it seemed yeah katosin it's spelled how it's pronounced (laughs) but i mean people it's it's where you put the emphasis yeah people uh people massacre my last name the same way it's if you, you know you learn in school yeah. oi and oy is oy so it's moynihan it's moynihan uh-huh. and i get monan hanan one time i just got uh-huh. is miss mama yep. there <laughs> i'm like oh wow we didn't get past the m <laughs> okay <laughs> yes it's you know it's a challenge but you know we're like at least you know it's got its personality it's not so hard once you get people to kind of say yeah you put the i always say you put the emphasis on the second <laughs> syllable and then you're okay. oh, now how and why did you decide to go single barrel with everything because a lot of brands you know they'll have their standard line and then they'll introduce single barrel selections at, at quite a premium but you're single barrel across the board how did you decide to do that well it was interesting because at first we only had the one right so it was the 80 proof. So we just would do it, you know, and at the size we were, that was a single barrel at a time made a lot of sense, Mm -hmm. right? We would, you know, make it and it would be, you know, 20 some cases or whatever. So we just would be doing that. And as we started to grow, it was kind of like we were talking about, you know, where we wanted to go with it. And we'd occasionally do cask proof single barrels as well. And Then we got to where we were doing more and what I just, I just noticed that, you know, one of the interesting things about barrels is how different they can be, even when everything Mm -hmm. is the same, you know, you can have two barrels next to each other and they can be, I mean, not worlds different, but, you know, notably different if you're used to tasting them and, and also that that difference can change with proof. So then we start to, you know, taste for, oh, these ones are perfect cast proof barrels. You don't want to add water to them. They have the texture and everything that you're looking for. Uh, there's ones that where the spice pops at 92, you know, as you go toward the 92 proof, really what I look for there is I want that little, you'll have a really gorgeous like citrus and plum notes on the mid palate. It should have a really nice, spiciness on the on the back and so it what it it just really made kind of sense to us to do it that way because then we could kind of manage our production in a way that fit the the demands of Mm. our markets and so we've kind of just stuck to it it's it makes it a little different most people blend to get a certain Mm -hmm. flavor and i choose barrels to get a certain i love that way that's i mean that's a very interesting take to do it i haven't heard of anybody else doing it that direction i think that's very interesting Mm -hmm. and you you were talking about markets where what markets are you in we're in about 26 states right now our biggest sales areas of course are maryland virginia and dc 
we do quite a bit in New York, kind of the East Coast, we kind of expanding. Of course, it, lately it's been a challenge when you're in markets away from home during right. these times. But, um, you know, we've been out in California, Arizona, Texas, Washington State, South Carolina, Georgia, yeah, we've we've had a pretty decent footprint, but it's all, of course, very small. Most of most of the places. Whiskey two of three. The uh, are we moving to the ninety-two proof distillers edition? So this one was one that we got a lot of feedback from people wanting mm-hmm. more proof, and originally we thought that that would mean that the eighty proof would go away, that everybody just wanted the 92 proof but it didn't really end up like that the the 80 proof is still our biggest seller it's still a lot of people just love it and it's it what's interesting is that it isn't necessarily the less educated consumers like the 80 proof you know there are a lot of people out there who really know their whiskey and for them it's like i don't know there's something about it i, I just think it's your best it. seller because it's and outstanding you know, the 92 proof is is really nice. It's got, a, like I said, the nice pop of citrus, some plums, some mm-hmm. spice, and some people really prefer that. I tend to find that when I'm tasting people through them, that people tend to either like the 80 and the cask are their two favorites, or the 92 and the cask are their two favorites. That they tend to, their personal palate just tends to prefer either the 80 or the 92. Yeah. People right. really like I have a nose note. And okay, a, what's your what's your nose, nose note, note yeah. on, on, on the 92? If you were to blindfold me and put this in front of me and say, here, try this brandy. Uh-huh. Upon smelling it, I would say, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's brandy. It comes across as brandy on the nose. Uh, yeah, I guess it does. Interesting. I was thinking it had a little more of a, a nutty smell than the first one, but not it's not like an overpowering nut. Very fruity on the nose. And then okay. fruity, yes. Like a fruity, nutty versus the caramel on the first one. And it's interesting, Becky, you did say plum. It's you did say notes of plum. Yep. Yeah. Definitely plum. One of the things we're looking to do in the next couple of years, perhaps, is I've started to experiment with some Virginia oak barrels. Most of our barrels are Missouri or Minnesota mm-hmm. oak. And what's interesting about them is that they, at 80 and at cask, there isn't a really big significant difference in the flavor from the Minnesota Missouri oak. But at 92, it's a little different. It's almost like there's a coconutty kind of note to it. And so it, we're looking at maybe converting our 92 proof like fully okay. to Virginia right. oak yeah. as we grow. Now the, now, the mouth on the 92. Um, I'm getting if, if I, mm-hmm. extract of whiskey or oil of whiskey. It's a very oily mouthfeel, and oh. it's 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 like it's like whiskey yeah. concentrate. It's it's just in, in the very best way. Texture is a thing I really look for um, in my experience of whiskey. I like to that the kind of the oiliness. If you have the right concentrate of oiliness, it kind of almost brings down some of the heat. Mm-hmm. And so I think those kind of whiskeys that have the proper type of, of oiliness for its proof is really where I tend to like kind of resonate with it. I don't like a lot of heat on mm-hmm. my whiskey. Um, you know, I've had cask proof whiskeys where you're like counting to find out when the flavor is going to come because <laughs> it's all burn up front. And, and you're like sitting here going, is it, is it? And then it comes and you're like, oh, there it is. You know, but that's, that's not really my vision for what I want. 
our brand to be. So the third one, I am already enjoying the third one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I get a, a grapefruit on the nose and on the palate. Neat. With a nice, oh. uh, nice hot finish. It's just a spicy hot. Yeah. I'm getting, yeah. I'm getting more rye spice than I do in either the 80 or the 92. But at the same time, I'm getting a cooler for me, a cooler palate. The palate, yes, I think the palate's Neat. cooler. I think the mm-hmm. finish is hotter. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it does because the spice sometimes comes in in unexpected mm-hmm. ways. Like sometimes I almost get some mintiness yeah. even in them, and that's always kind of yeah. fun too. We, yeah, Becky, we close by asking all of our guests about cocktails and what their favorites are. Not not your yeah. single favorite cocktail, but but what is your go to? Is it built? Is yes. it shaken? Is it stirred? How do you like your cocktails? Oh, I tend to be a little bitter mm-hmm. and woozy. So I when I. I, I find that if I love sours, but they, they go down so darn easy <laughs> that I have to deploy them very carefully. Uh-huh. They're like the Gatorade of cocktails. <laughs> it's just one of those things when you're in this business and you're going, you know, and you're doing things. It's like, for me, I need a cocktail that lets me know I'm having right. a cocktail and I need to yeah. slow yeah, you're down. Ta- you're talking to my 21-year-old and... self who was all about Midori sours. Every sour, like I would... <laughs> Every fruity, soury, and I would come home. It was terrible. Exactly. You know, they go down, and you're just like, "What happened Sorry. to my drink?" And yeah, better to know, better to nurse a better to nurse a Manhattan than lamb highball. Exactly. Go with Manhattans or um, uh, Boulevardier mm-hmm. is always fun. You know, the Vucarés, Sazeracs, kind of that whole family of 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 kind of little bit more bitter a little boozy cocktails torontos are fun you know all right very good yeah well on that note we will thank you so much for being on the show today and uh we are very happy to have tasted all these whiskeys and i'm glad that i know which one is my favorite so i can run out and get more (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome and i really appreciate you guys bringing me on um and i hope that before too long Things will be better, and maybe we can come out and have that a That would drink. be great. Uh, we would love to come visit you as well. All right. Well, thank, well, thank you, you so, much, so much, Becky. Okay, thank bye-bye. You. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. Hey, Louise. Welcome back. It's good to have you. This week is Rye, 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 Rye. And we're going to be talking about Catoctin Creek. So what would you think about the ryes we sent over? I love the Rye, 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 Rye week. You know, I'm married to a man named Ryan, and I call him Rye, Rye all the time. And I love Rye whiskey, so it's all good in the hood. Cute. Tocton Creek Rye, the Roundstone Rye, was delicious. And I love a Manhattan, uh, and I prefer to use a rye in my Manhattan, so... As do I. Yeah, it's just, I mean, that is honestly my go-to 
cocktail if I'm out for dinner. So I figured what I would do with that whiskey is I would make a rye Manhattan with it. And then I would pair it with Devils on Horseback. Oh my goodness, what is that? Yeah, the Devils on Horseback. It's a fun kind of 1960s cocktail party hors d'oeuvre, which I figure goes really well with the Manhattan. And what they are is, there are many different ways to make them, but the way I make them is you take some big fat dates and you stuff them with blue cheese and you wrap them in bacon and you pop them in the oven and they are just salty, sweet, and funky deliciousness. Oh my goodness, that sounds great. Yeah, and I was thinking that that type of snack would draw out any sweetness and the woodiness from the whiskey. So, you know, I think all you need to do is add a little cocktail dress to this mix and you're you're pretty much good to go. Perfect. You know, I'm going to have a barbecue this week and I think maybe I will serve those hors d'oeuvres. A barbecue with, you know, three people because, you know, social distancing. So well, listen. It's a weird little barbecue. But. Even though you're only going to barbecue with three people, let me tell you something. Make like a hundred of these things because they're very easy to eat. They go down. They go down easily. And I would say this. Try to find the the largest, freshest dates that you possibly can, because sometimes in the supermarket, they're a little, they, they look like they've been sitting on the shelf a little bit long and they're dried out. But if you get like right. some big, fat, juicy ones, you usually have them at Middle Eastern markets. Um, right. It'll take the snack next level for sure. Perfect. Well, I'm totally going to try that. Well, thanks for your input on this. And I can't wait to try all of that. And I will chat with you next week about our next whiskey. That sounds great. Can't wait to talk to you about it then. Please visit our website to see our show notes on today's podcast at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you can see our upcoming topics and guest roster and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salon. Spirits of Whiskey is a production of First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available on Anchor, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts can be heard.